0: Hello, I'm Emma Louise Coffey, and you're welcome to the Dairy Edge, the Chagas Dairy Podcast. We're bringing you the latest information, insights, and opinion to improve dairy farm performance. With depleted fodder supplies in farmyards across the country, dairy specialist Joe Patton gives advice on how to prepare for the winter of 2018.
1: The worry I would have is that some farms might consider that a large first cut crop, of a very heavy first cut crop is the solution to, to the problem. Um, and look, we've seen that over the last number of years, and even in last year, that farms that focused entirely on a very heavy first cut crop, in fact, they might be the farms that suffered most in terms of um, fodder shortages, because when you look at those farms, particularly maybe further north and further west in the country, second-cut silages last uh, last summer were very disappointing and very difficult to, to achieve. So uh, I suppose the first warning, I would say, or the first point I'd like to make really is that the solution to this whole thing is not going to be solved by just delaying first cut into the middle or the end of June. I think the most important thing we need to look at is maximising yield of silage from the, the, the area across the season rather than just for one single for one single cut okay
0: and just to follow on from that the majority of farms probably do have their silage ground spread with fertilizer now uh where you haven't gotten out yet what is your advice
1: so if there's no if there's no uh, if there's no nothing spread to this at this stage uh emma louise i suppose you know we would sort of say that the the um the P and K levels, really, should be applied as normal. So you're probably looking at, for your standard, I suppose, you can stand with index 2 or an index 3 uh, crop. You're looking at something like 25 to 30 kilos of P per hectare, um, plus um, up to 100 kilos of, of K for the first cut. So that really comes to, if you take slurry out of it and leave slurry to one side, that's really, you're talking about the equivalent of about two and a half bags to the acre of 0730 with the nitrogen coming, you know, two and a half bags equivalent of 0730 with nitrogen taken as a separate, slightly separate question. Now, the nitrogen one is always interesting, I think, because for some reason we're very, I think a lot of farmers are very, very conscious of nitrogen application rate when it comes to um when it comes to silage. And I think a lot of that comes back to the old rule of home that we had was the the two units rule. Be, often people would say, you know, we spread fertilizer and we get, it takes up two units a day and we, we can't, um, we we sort of can't cut silage before that two units per day has been, um, has been utilized. So I would say that there's a bit of a risk with that that people this year might decide to cut back a little bit on nitrogen when I would say that really, we probably still should be looking at and um, we should still be looking at almost, you know, with good qualities forward, they should have received up to 100 units of nitrogen, at, you know, after closing for first cut. So taking what they've got so far plus the top up should come to 100 units and um, sort of come to 100 units of nitrogen at least. Now, you know, two units thing becomes a bit of a complication when it comes to cutting data. But it is important to remember that, you know, that swords that are growing at maybe 100, 120 kilograms dry matter per day through sort of late April into early May and on into June, those crops could be using up to three units of, of nitrogen per day. So the advice there really is to really not cut back too much on the nitrogen, that, you know, fast-growing swords can use up more nitrogen than what people might think. And when it comes to cutting date, then it should be dictated by conditions on the day of cutting Grass sugars and the ability to wilt the silage, rather than worrying too much about the nitrogen applied um, five or six weeks ago.
0: And I guess you know where somebody has spread their uh, fertilizer applications in early April, and you're you know even if it's just the two units per day, that'll be well gone by the end of May, early June. You know, it will,
1: it will. Like I mean, this is always the thing. You know, what you what we really want to see here is that. The two-unit rule, if you like, is a useful guide for the timing of the fertilizer application, but it's not that useful in terms of dictating the, the cutting data beside it, if you know what I mean. So we should sort of – it's a good estimate or a good guideline up front, but it doesn't mean that when you come to the end, late May, early June, and we've got good conditions – we shouldn't be afraid to go ahead. You know, you test your sugars. If you can wilt the silage for, you know, for a day up to 20 to 30 percent dry matter, your silage will be fine. That's the that, that has been the experience. Um, and it's a bit of a shame sometimes when you see people waiting for an extra few days just to let nitrogen go out of the crop and then maybe weather breaks, et cetera, et cetera, and you miss your chance. So, you know, we have to push for, for yield here. So we, we, we shouldn't cut back you know, maybe 10-15% is about as much as you'd cut back to nitrogen by, and then you, you push it on and you, you, you make your move then um, early on. So, like, you know, it's back to that thing, really, that if you, if you can, you know, the experience on some some commercial farms and some research areas is that if we can get our first cut out, you know, even by the last days of May, early June, there's still an opportunity to, to make a very good second cut crop sort of towards the last days of July. And I think that's going to be... A big part of building reserves plus the the surplus silage coming off grazing paddocks, etc. Rather than just this focus on making one massive pit of silage, which will inevitably end up as poor quality.
0: And to follow on then, you know, if we do our first cut in late May or the, the first few days of June, we're targeting then our second cut for late July.
1: Yeah, you could certainly you know, that's the uh, that's just, you'll be certainly looking to get out the last days of July, certainly, you know, and uh, you know that 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 will that will work well and you will have a decent a decent second cut crop that won't be as costly per ton of dry matter as maybe what people might perceive it. Uh and it also and importantly too, it also means that if you have your second cut taken out in late late July You've got an aftermath, or, a, or a, you've got an aftergrass ward coming back um, through the month of August, and it gives you options then uh, later in the season for either for grazing cows or grazing young stock. Whereas a very delayed first cut and um, a second cut that runs into middle of late August, there's very little opportunity for that field to do much more after second cut for the rest of the season. So you know, t- always emphasise. We want to maximise the yield of, of tonnage across the season rather than just in the individual cut.
0: And to take it a step further again, if we cut in late July and the autumn comes um, good, is there an opportunity for a third cut?
1: There is an opportunity for a third cut in some cases, but yeah, like that, you would say that it's certainly late July would you would have to have the silage out by late July for your second for your second cut to, to, to facilitate that. But certainly, look. You're never going to win any prizes for third cut silage. Um, you know, the classic system for third cut would, would mean that generally would, everything would have shifted forward by a month almost. It should be cutting your, generally speaking, a t- tree cut system. You would certainly have your, your, um, first cut out by, by middle of May. But in this circumstance, we're looking at just building bulk or building extra, extra, extra bulk on the farm. Certainly, if conditions are good, you will make, uh, probably a baled crop of, you know, it's going to be ordinary stuff. It's not going to, as I say, it's not going to win any prizes, but it will certainly be OK for, for dry cow feed in midwinter, that type of stuff, for sure. There's an opportunity there and it would be a sort of a bale cut um, at
0: that stage. And then to follow on, you mentioned surplus uh, bales that would be produced from grazing paddocks. Um, where this arises on farms and hopefully we will have a, a lot of it to build up the, the bales in the yard for maybe milking cows on the shoulders but where sur- surpluses are rising do you go would you advise farmers to go straight out when they're at fifteen, sixteen hundred, 1600 and they're removed from the wedge or would you let them build up and bulk for say a week to 10 days
1: Yeah look that's, there's a judgement I suppose there's a bit of a judgement call each time on that I suppose we we do want them removed within rotation, I suppose. Um, you're probably looking at, if, if you're going to bulk them, it's probably not much more than 2,200, 2,400. Now, difficult enough to make silage or even to get bales cut at much lower than that. So generally speaking, what you're talking about is the day you're thinking of grazing it, you're skipping it and you're probably having that cut, you know, probably within four or five days later, it's, it's taken out any much longer than that. And the the risk is that you 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 um you mess up your your grazing rotation, which is the priority. So what you really want to do is take those paddocks out. Um, you want to take those paddocks out quite quickly, but you, there is some scope to allow them to bulk for four or five days. Now, four or five days at that time of the year could add, you know, it could add a half a tonne of dry matter um per hectare onto the onto the um. Onto the swart, which would make it would make it worth cutting, I suppose at that stage. Just one other interesting thing, I suppose, and Louise, on that. On some farms, what we're starting to see now is that, with very you know, with very rapid growth in in mid season, and um, you know, the 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 drive for very very strong growth at that stage, a lot of surplus paddocks been taken off grazing areas. It is worth remembering that you know, for every for every tonne dry matter of silage that you remove, you will be removing about 25 kilos of um, of of K in particular. Like you'll also remove P, of course, but K. You know your potassium levels in silage generally will run at something around two and a half, three percent. So about 25 kilos of uh, K for every tonne of dry matter removed. So it is important that when you're looking at your soil test on your your grazing block that the K levels and the K application rates particularly in the autumn you know that you return some of that K to, to paddocks that have been cut for silage during the season
0: and it's interesting you say that Joe I was recently at the open day on Eddie and Dennis O'Donnell's farm and they would say that where they have an option of taking out a paddock for bale silage they refer back to the K level in the paddocks and whichever is lowest they just continue grazing it they won't remove bales from it so that's a really interesting point um, just to follow on, then, you know, if we follow the normal practice of doing our two cuts of silage, some farmers are still going to be concerned that they don't have the, enough feed for the winter and they don't have reserves in the yard. Um, is there alternatives people can consider? Like, would you would you consider uh, buying silage, renting land to cut silage or purchasing alternative feedstuffs?
1: Yeah, this is the thing. I goes everything we've discussed so far is sort of looking at management within your farm gate, and that that will unfortunately only bring you so far. You know, whatever you gain in first cut, you lose in second cut, and, and and vice versa. So certainly there is a need to look at that. Maybe for this year, anyway, there's going to be need to look at some. You know, there's there's going to be need to to look at some possible alternatives or some some feeds to come in from 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 outside. Um, yeah, purchase and silage obviously is, um, is 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 a straight option. You know what you've got pretty much up front. But unfortunately, you know a lot of the silage that's available for cutting, or sorry, that's available for for purchase from pits and from bales. You know the quality of what's available t- tends to be tends to be, t- t- to be relatively disappointing. Um, you know. the, the just by nature of the type of ground, I suppose it's been cut for that job. Um, tends to be low, low-index soils and, and and later cut. But it is an option to fill bulk for dry cows, I suppose. Um, standing crops of silage they're notoriously difficult to um, to to um, to cast out because it really is driven on it really is driven on on yield, um, yield particularly on yield. So. Uh, I suppose one of the risks with buying sort of or buying or taking land on short term for for silage crops is that you know you don't know the P and K levels, you don't know what the likely growth response is. I suppose you assume then that they're going to be poor. Um, but if in the case of of taking land like that, you do have to be there's no point in renting that land and going to the trouble of doing that and then scrimping on the um, on the the fertiliser application rate. Like you really do have to try and maximise yield on short term short term lays like that. But look at when you when you add it all up and you so many variables around it in terms of cutting cost, distance to travel, you know, the cost per acre might differ and the yield value. When you add it all up, if the silage on the stem is costing more than fourteen to fifteen cent a kilo dry matter, so that's 150 euros per ton of dry matter in the in your own pit, you know, after anything above that and it's it's not likely to be to be competitive. So um for the year it's in you just I think people need to exercise caution around you know renting in land with, with poor growth potential because we've often seen when you when you do the sums on it that land like that that with poor growth potential the silage coming from that could cost you up on twenty cents a kilo in some cases when you take everything into account. Um the other alternative maybe at the back end of the season is to um and it may actually be something that's a little bit more predictable or a little bit more um Little safer it would be to look at possible options with 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 tillage, cereal growers, tillage growers, and look at maybe buying some maize um, or taking some maize on contract. But that's a, that's a whole other day's a um, whole other day's discussion. But there is a there is good options there to maybe bring in fifty, sixty, hundred tons of silage for your standard for your standard hundred cow herds. It'll, it'll go a long way to help build reserves.
0: And I suppose finally, uh, Joe. I know that we we are in the middle of it and we're just coming out of this fodder crisis hopefully but um this has created an awful lot of stress and pressure um to the farm system but also to the farmers um do farmers need to take a step back and look at the overall picture of what's happening on their farm and reevaluate say stock numbers and the amount of grass they're growing Oh I
1: think that's 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 absolutely key um that's absolutely key Emily I think you know we just need to be careful a little bit on how we how we view this um how we view what happened for this season like i mean there's a, there is a there is narrative of immersion that we we talk about too many cows in the country farms being overstocked et cetera et cetera et cetera now it is interesting when you look back and i looked at the i looked at the data myself there from c s o recently just to 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 look at this we have to remember there were more cows in the country in nineteen ninety eight than there are today um but that's in a global sense. There, there were there there are actually more cows nationally. There were more cows nationally back then than there are now. But the balance, I suppose, has shifted a bit, and that obviously more dairy cows than relative to, to to beef cows now. But really, coming back to the individual farm, I suppose the national data means one thing. But the individual farm, everyone has to look at their own their own situation. There's no doubt about it, and I think you know if you go back over. Every open day, every farm walk, every dairy conference that we've hosted, from a Chagga's point of view, that we've hosted over the last ten years, while we have looked at the opportunities and the benefits of um, potential expansion, you know the warnings have been there around the need to stock your farm based on its grass-growing capacity, and a very simple rule of thumb you can use is just looking very simple that you do need. At least five tons dry matter uh, per livestock unit. You need to be growing at least five tons dry, of dry matter per livestock unit to have a sort of a sustainable system. So, for most people, maybe they are growing ten tons thereabouts on their farm, which wouldn't be surprising given where soil fertility rates are at. Ten tonnes would mean that a two cow, a two livestock unit per hectare system is as good as it's going to get from on a whole farm basis. Now, farms that are performing quite well in terms of grass growth, up 14, 15 tonnes, they can push up towards more 2.4, 2.5 livestock units per hectare. But the risk is really that that message gets lost a little, that if we only talk about stocking rates without reference to grass growth rates, it's quite difficult for people to see where they're where they're at. So certainly, um, individual farms need to do, need to take a step back um, from this and look look a little closer at it. I know, I suppose one thing that worries me slightly, about that is that if if the solution to all this is just renting more conic or for silage grounds, it's not likely to be profitable. We really do need to look at maximising growth rates within our own resources rather than just simply renting in more short term conic acre to solve a problem.
0: And like considering the current situation and the current spring um getting out to grass early is what we recommend and where farmers did get out to grass in February, do you consider that was of benefit to them
1: yeah look it's a, that's a very interesting one i mean we, there was an open day hosted recently in in the college in in and in, in county Cavan and That, that question came up quite strongly actually, and it was, it was a good, it was very timely actually to to, to have a look at that, that there were some people in attendance that questioned whether, given the spring we had, the idea of an early grazing system was shown to be unsustainable. That was a, a question that came up. Like, is it? Are we showing that the system is unsustainable, um, and it's just entirely dependent on weather? Like, the interesting thing, when you know, as a, as an answer to that, the Lads and Valley Hills did look at this, and they, their comparisons at the moment are really looking at sort of, you know, appropriately stocked systems or high stock systems, and also differences in 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 turnout dates. So we had her- part of the herd that was only turned out for the first time in late March, another part of the herd that was done as we would consider best practice out in early February. The interesting thing when you looked at that across the board, the system of production within the college in Ballyhays that was most self-sufficient for silage, so the one that had adequate silage reserves. Um, after the spring was the system that was stocked at 2.5 cows per hectare that had um, an effort made for early grass in the spring, as in February grazing, and also uh, extended grazing where possible in the autumn. So that system returned the best balance between supply and demand of silage. And speaking to the farm farm manager there, if you take 100-cow equivalent, getting out to grass in spring saved them About 220 tonnes fresh weight of silage. So they graze the equivalent of 220 tonnes fresh weight. And oftentimes, that first grazing and the the volume of feed taken from that first grazing is not counted in terms of the benefit from it. So, in simple terms, the farm manager was saying if we had kept our 100 cows, for example, indoors, we would be 220 tonnes of silage worse off at the moment. Um, which is an interesting way of looking at it. And when you look today on the on the farm, the growth rates on the areas that have been grazed, um, forced and grazed early, are now exceeding those that haven't been grazed yet. So actually, the early grazing system saved silage and now has a better growth rate than the late turnout system. So they're actually going to pass them out in terms of total farming on the farm within the next few days.
0: And I guess, you know, there was a knock-on effect in that, it was a lot easier to graze this February than this March and the fact that they were out yeah, you know yeah.
1: the... now, absolutely and look I fully understand and fully take the point that this year what it didn't what is what it actually proved to me I think is not so much in terms of the um the, the, you know it's, it's not so much around the the, the the question around grazing for me is solved in my head anyway that, you know there's no question but it's the way to go but really I think what it has probably highlighted and it's more important is the need for good facilities on farms in terms of cow accommodation, feed space, the capacity to manage animals when things are under pressure. So I think an awful lot of the the difficulty and the psychological pressure comes from, number one, not having the adequate feed in the yard, but also, number two, not having the facilities to handle cows when they do have to be on uh, housed or on concrete for, for a few weeks. I think a bit of extra feed space, a cubicle per cow and the slurry storage capacity, those are the real lessons to me that when they're in place, you know, not at very high cost, but when those are in place and those facilities are adequate, we then have the capacity to manage the herd appropriately when, when needed to put them in the, indoors. It doesn't dilute the message on grazing, but it just makes the, It takes the pressure off the owner-operator in in those situations.
0: That's great. Thank you, Joe. OK. That's it for this week's episode of the Dairy Edge podcast. And my thanks to Joe Patton for joining me on this week's show. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts. And for more information, go to the Chagas website at chagas.ie. I'm Emma-Louise Coffey, and join me next time for your Dairy Edge.